Tonight, straight from the source, a big decision in the Georgia election interference case. Former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows cannot move his case to federal court. And it comes as a bombshell report was made public, revealing a sitting U.S. senator was among those recommended for charges. Any minute, former President Trump will kick off a rally in South Dakota alongside Governor Kristi Noem. She's expected to endorse him, fueling speculation that she's eyeing the number two spot in Trump's third bid for the White House. And at least eight confirmed sightings of an escaped murderer, with nearly 400 officers now on the case. A prison guard has been fired, and still the convicted killer who busted out of a prison near Philadelphia is on the lam. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. Good evening. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. We are watching a major decision in the Georgia election case. A judge just denied Mark Meadows' bid to move his case to federal court. He testified just days ago in his own defense, but that clearly did not move the judge, who says Meadows failed to meet even the quite low threshold for removal. This can't be welcome news for former President Trump. Just yesterday, he said he may try to get his Georgia case moved as well. And moments ago, we learned that Meadows has already filed notice to appeal. With me now, former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, defense attorney and former Georgia prosecutor Sarah Flack, and former assistant special Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Uh, So, Nick, the court here concluding that Meadows has not met even this, quote, quite low threshold for removal. How are you reading this decision? I think I read this decision as bad news for all of the defendants. Uh, Part of their strategy was to try and break up this case as much as they could, getting some of it into federal court. Uh, And this strategy tonight has failed. If you read this opinion, uh, it doesn't spell good news for Donald Trump. Uh, He is not going to be able to meet that threshold. Uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was a government employee, an assistant attorney general in charge of the environmental division, he's not going to be able to meet that threshold all for the simple reason that trying to undermine a state election is not anywhere close to within the scope of duties of these federal officials. So I think no matter what they do, they can appeal this to wherever. It's not going anywhere at this point. Um, That avenue is foreclosed. Sarah, is this what you were expecting? Oh, absolutely. I am not surprised at all. And you can see that the judge was very careful in particular in this 49-page order to make sure to uh, be prepared for this possible appeal, which they've just done moments ago. I mean, he really spent time breaking down the standard. I mean, basically, it's are you a federal official? What's the scope of your federal job? And what are the allegations in the indictment? Does that meet the job description? And the judge here said absolutely not, meaning no jurisdiction in federal court kicking it back to Fulton County Superior Court. Exactly what I thought would happen. Sarah, the judge here in this case is promising that this is independent of these other efforts, these other co-defendants who want to move their cases from state uh, state court to federal court. Former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, former Coffee County GOP chair Kathy Latham, current Georgia State Senator Sean Still, former Georgia GOP chair David Schaefer. We know Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman as well are maybes on going this route. We've heard about the former president. Uh, That said, what do you make of that? Making clear, the judge says that this is independent, is going to move forward with these other cases, uh, but at the same time, 
you think this doesn't bode well? No, I mean, I think the judge is, is following the law. I mean, you can see that in his 49 page order. He is following the law to a T. Um, and so I certainly believe the judge will hear every single defendant individually and make the same analysis. Again, what is the job description? Basically, what is ascertaining the scope of your job as a federal official? And then understanding if the conduct in the indictment um, matches, is that part of your job as a federal official? So the judge will follow that law um, and apply that to each defendant. But I think the same result is going to happen each and every time. This is going to remain in Fulton County Superior Court. No doubt about that. And Shan, I wonder what you think about Meadows' appeal, if he has any shot, if that's going to deter him and the others from really pursuing any failures they may have to appeal this and, and really extend the timeline here. Uh, I don't think his chances on appeal are particularly good, and let me explain why. The factual record that's been developed and his extraordinary gamble to take the stand and expose himself to all that fact-finding and cross-examination, waiving his right not to testify under the Fifth Amendment, that's given the trial court judge a very strong factual record. And the appeals court is not going to re-examine facts that way. They're not going to take new testimony. They're ruling on the law, so that trial court has made a solid legal analysis, but most importantly, they have a very big factual record, very strong. The judge in this case used Meadows' own testimony against him, really to prove the point that Meadows wasn't trying to. Was it a mistake for Meadows to take the stand? I think in 2020 hindsight, it's going to be. Uh, just how bad of a mistake remains to be seen because the worst case scenario is not even that he doesn't remove it, but that in his testimony, he was inconsistent and may expose himself to perjury or false statements charges. So Nick, Trump's lawyers told the court just yesterday that they may try to move the president's case to federal court. You mentioned that this doesn't look good for him, that's not going to stop him from trying. Does he have a slightly better shot than Meadows at this? Oh, I think he's got a much worse shot. I mean, basically, Meadows was put in there as a stalking horse for these other defendants to see if they could open up the door to get the rest of them into the federal court. Basically, that door is shut. If you read the judge's opinion, he makes it very clear that the executive branch has absolutely no business um, putting its nose into state elections or involving itself in state elections. All of that language that applies to Meadows is going to apply in spades to Donald Trump. Um, if you look at, I believe, page 41 or footnote 13, where he describes that um, the scope of the executive uh, function there's no way that Donald Trump is ever going to overcome that language. Sarah, the judge in the Georgia case worried about the sort of delay caused by exactly this. This is what the judge said in court. I think we've already had some counsel indicating they're on trial in other cases in federal court. And if we're just going to be sitting in a position where we're having to consider a continuance motion in, in 40 days, um, what why Why delay the inevitable? Sarah, what does this mean for the timeline of, of the other eight co-defendants, 18 co-defendants? Well, I mean, I think the reality is the priority right now is trying those who have filed this speed trial demand because Georgia law requires that they be, once you file that motion, you have to be tried within two terms of the indictment. 
which is why we see those dates coming um, in late October, because they have to be tried by the second term, um, which ends, I think, early, early November. So that's going to be the priority. What happens with these other defendants? We already know they're not filing these speedy trial demands. They want to be severed. Um, but we will see we'll see what happens. Um, but certainly these four or five who have filed this speedy trial demand, they're going to be tried first. The judge is going to do everything he can because he has to, under Georgia law, get these tried in front of a jury. So also today, we saw just a stunning report from the special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, and it showed uh, that it recommended charges for 39 people. Of course, District Attorney Fonnie Willis ultimately indicted only 19. And among the most notable names on this list, former Georgia Republican senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, and then sitting South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Now, they were not indicted ultimately, but here's Graham's response earlier today. This is troubling for the country. We can't criminalize senators doing their job when they have a constitutional requirement to fulfill. Other Trump allies who peddled 2020 election lies and escaped indictment in Georgia include Michael Flynn, Boris Epstein, and Cleta Mitchell. Um, Sarah, explain how this works with the grand jury recommending bringing charges against 39, ultimately the DA indicting only 19. Take us through how a county DA makes this, this decision to indict or not. Absolutely. So the special grand jury, their job is to hear evidence um, and to make a, a recommendation to the DA. And then the DA can go through that. And the DA ultimately is the one who decides what she wants to go forward on. What it helps, though, because she understands sort of what the issues are, what the jurors are interested in, what maybe more evidence she needs. Um, knowing Fonnie Willis, she is very, very thorough. She has tried multiple RICO cases in her career. In fact, she's made a career of that. I can guarantee you she's been in, in her office, in her, her war room, so to speak, and has called each and every one of these defendants and looked at what evidence do we have? How can we prove it? Because it's not about also what we think. It's about what we can prove. Do we have the hard evidence to prove this? And Fonnie is not going to indict somebody if she doesn't believe she can prove it in court. So I think that's why she ultimately used her discretion um, in not charging these other defendants because she's not going to try a case that she doesn't think she can win. Yeah, Nick, you heard what Senator Graham said there. Uh, we have to point out, again, none of the senators here who were recommended for indictment by the special grand jury ultimately had charges pursued against them by the DA. But he's talking about this is criminalizing the work that politicians or senators do. Where is the line, do you think, between politicking and criminal act when it comes to the behavior of these senators? Well, the political act that he's talking about is the excuse he made to try and get out of testifying altogether before the special grand jury. Uh, he took that all the way to the Supreme Court, claiming congressional immunity. Uh, that was his thing to try and keep out of testifying, and for good reason. I mean, we can see now that the grand jury did suspect that he had committed crimes. Uh, if you listen to Raffensburg's testimony, the Secretary of State of Georgia, you compare what was said by Donald Trump uh, to Raffensburger, and you compare what was said by Lindsey Graham um, to Raffensburger. It's almost the same playbook. It's as though he was part of the team trying to influence the election in Georgia. Now, I think the problem with Lindsey Graham was that there just wasn't enough evidence. Basically, with respect to Graham and Raffensperger, it was a he said, he said. 
It was not tape recorded, unlike the call with Donald Trump, so that there really wasn't something for a jury to listen to uh, and to sink their teeth into. And there wasn't much other evidence beyond that phone call, as far as we know. So I think what Fonnie Willis did in that circumstance was really make a decision that she just didn't have the evidence that was sufficient to convict Graham beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, it doesn't mean that if someone down the line doesn't turn and cooperate, that he couldn't find himself in hot water again. If there is more evidence. Shan, President Trump has responded to this on social media, quote, they want to indict anyone who happened to be breathing at the time. Fonnie Willis didn't seize on all of the recommendations, obviously, of the grand jury, though. How does she look after this special grand jury report is out? I think she looks like a very careful prosecutor, uh, as Nick was alluding to. Uh, it's probably the evidence that she's looking at. We obviously don't know everything that she saw. We have these votes, and it looks like those people in the special grand jury wanted to indict people like Graham. But she has to look at the whole picture, and the votes alone aren't necessarily dispositive on that. She's got to look at all the evidence she has, and even though you might have a majority of votes there, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't have some weaknesses in the case. So I think she's really shown herself to be a very independent prosecutor. And obviously, this really flies in the face of what Trump's saying. I mean, she could have easily have taken these recommendations and say, hey, you know, not me. These people wanted to do it. But she exercised her discretion. And I think that shows a very even-handedness. Well, it could, if she had seized on that, it could be at some peril to herself if she wasn't able to make a strong enough case, though. That could have shown her to be weak as well, though, right? Sure. Although by that time, it would have been pretty far down the line. They would have had some trials already. So that right. would have been bad for the defendants. But, you know, she's being, I think, from the looks of it, very fair and being very careful to protect people's rights. Shan, thank you so much. Sarah, Nick, thank you as well for being with us this evening. Right now in South Dakota, former President Trump is holding a rally, but is he also holding auditions for a running mate? The potential role that Governor Kristi Noem could play in his bid for the White House next. Plus, it's been more than a week, and that killer who crab-walked his way up a prison wall to freedom is still on the run, where the intense manhunt stands this hour ahead. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Former President Trump is holding his first rally since his fourth indictment. But he's not the lone attraction in Rapid City, South Dakota tonight. He's sharing the spotlight with Governor Kristi Noem. And she is speaking right now. She is live there uh, on the screen. She's a rising star in the Republican Party who is widely seen as a potential VP pick. And she's also expected to endorse Trump tonight. CNN senior national correspondent Kyung Law is at the rally for us. Kyung, it's still four months before primary voting begins, but there are a lot of political watchers who are seeing tonight as a potential tryout in the Veep stakes. What are you hearing there? 
Uh, yeah, it seems to be a, a, a double a double lane here that uh, Republicans are watching in South Dakota. We're not only expecting to see the president speaking, the former president speaking after that indictment in Fulton County, after all the news involving uh, Mark Meadows. What we're also watching is this woman who is on stage who is speaking, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, extraordinarily popular here in her home state, having won in 2022 by 27 percentage points, and it certainly sounds like. Like she is in the very early stage of her speech where she's about to endorse Donald Trump. She's throwing a lot of compliments, heaping compliments on him. Um, and the reporting that we have from CNN is that she is expected to formally endorse Trump tonight in this speech. So what he has not done, what Trump has not done yet is select that running mate. And there have been a number of candidates who are trying to get into that second slot, at least slyly, or sometimes overtly saying that they would like to be his running mate. And certainly uh, what we are seeing right now tonight is that Governor Noam is uh, sidling up and hoping that he, she is at least going to be in a favorable light right before Trump takes the stage here in South Dakota. Brianna. All right, Kyung Law, live for us in Rapid City. Thank you so much for that. Well, before tonight, Trump and Noam were busy heaping praise on each other, fueling speculation that she could have the inside track on becoming his running mate if and when Trump secures the GOP nomination. Let's talk about this now with CNN political commentators, Bakari Sellers and Alex, uh, Alice Stewart with us as well. All right, guys, is this a VP tryout? What do you think? Of course it is. And, and look, a lot of people say, wow, it's so early. It's too soon to be talking about this. It's never too early for Donald Trump to launch a, a race to vie for his attention or to kiss the ring. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And look, the way that Donald Trump works is loyalty is key for him. And blind loyalty is even better than that. And, and Governor Nome fits that bill perfectly. She's been very supportive of him along the way, certainly re reaping praise on him. And I talked with her campaign tonight. She will, in any, any minute now, she will uh, formally endorse him. And that really does set her in a good path to, to be one of the many people that he will probably consider for, for VP. And, and look, in terms of the policy, she's right on board with, with a lot of the policies he stands for. And she certainly is someone that uh, will continue to, to be a supportive of him if she does uh, continue it's, this. It's not too early because this race is over. I mean, I, this race will effectively be over on King Day. I think it's January 15th or so. But whenever uh, the Iowa primary is or Iowa caucus is, this race will be over. Donald Trump will trounce the rest of his opponents. I don't think Christy Nome is in the top tier, however. But what Donald Trump does very well is he goes out and browbeats the rest of his opponents. He, he pushes people into submission. And I think that Christy Nome is the first of a lot of statewide elected officials that are going to endorse him for president. Why Obama. don't you think she's in the top tier? Because they're, they're more talented people than Christy Nome. I mean, I, I just think that's a fact. I think that if you want someone who can bring in a different, um, who can make you a, a broader appeal, you bring in a Tim Scott or you bring in a, a, a Nikki Haley, both whom I know very well, who are from South Carolina. I think if you want a fighter, for example, and something that people wouldn't necessarily expect you to do, I think a Donald Trump, Chris Christie ticket is very formidable um, because nobody, I mean, I, I love Kamala Harris, but nobody wants to debate Chris Christie. I don't want to debate Chris Christie. I don't know any lawyer in America that wants to debate Chris Christie. Um, and so I think that there are just people who are better or more skilled than Christy Nome, uh, and I think that there are bet people who are better and more skilled who are running for president of the United States. I think tonight she's doing what she has to do to put her name in the hat.
But I don't think that, first of all, I don't think this field is very talented at all, but I don't think she reaches that level of talent to, to fit that category. I think one of the things she did really to curry even more favor with him is is she's a, a popular governor, and there was talk for a while that she was going to get into the presidential race. She made the conscious decision not to do so because, in her mind, she felt though Donald Trump was the sure. was the runaway contender. And speaking with her campaign, uh, she's obviously serving as governor. She says she has not had the conversation with with former President Trump about this. But if he offers this to her, she's certainly going to seriously me, consider also, this. She said she's openly interested. Yeah. I mean, every, I mean, look, I, we said this recently before when Donald Trump said he weighed 215 pounds <laughs> when he was getting indicted in, 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 in Atlanta, Georgia. Look, I'm interested in dating Holly Berry, right? That's not going to happen. Like, that's not a thing that happens just because you're interested. But the fact is... There are people who are just better suited for this. And, and to your point, Ron DeSantis probably is the individual that Republicans would clamor most for this opportunity. And we've seen what happened when Ron DeSantis ran for president of the United States. He just doesn't stack up well. He doesn't debate well. When in Ron DeSantis' biggest problem is the more people meet him, the, more, the less people like him. And so I think Christy Nome has a lot of vetting to do. And I think there are people who are better. And I will, I will stick by this. I think that Nikki Haley, I think Tim Scott... I think that there are a lot of people who are better suited to be Donald Trump's president than... Let's Christine. talk about that. And don't sell yourself short, by the way, on Halle Berry. Well, I have right? a, I, but, my but wife looks better than Halle Berry. Yeah, Let me just yes, throw that yeah, out there. Right. She does yeah. look better than Halle Berry. That's but I'm right. just, I'm You're just categorically winning. throwing You're that out there. You're already winning at life, so we're just going to say yeah, that. Yeah, there's no reason to come okay, in Okay, so, and place. maybe this isn't the right way to think about it, because Donald Trump is sometimes just different, and it's not always about conventional politics. But he did pick Mike Pence kind of conventionally in 2016 to shore up some concerns about evangelicals. He doesn't have those anymore. He has evangelicals. Uh, where does he need to shore himself up now, Alice? He needs to shore himself up with suburban women and a lot of the disaffected Republicans who sure. said, I'm fed up with the drama of Donald Trump. And, and look, I'm not so sh sure that the evangelicals are as on board as he thinks. Many of them that I speak with say they're ready to turn the page. They're ready to look elsewhere. But here's, here's the thing is he does need a candidate that will help balance out the ticket. There's Donald Trump. He needs someone that will balance out the ticket. Again, Nikki Haley or Tim Scott might be good, but someone who can keep sub uh, get suburban women back in the fold, keep the evangelicals uh, in the fold, and also, also encourage... Uh, minorities, whether it's um, African-Americans, Hispanic, Latinas, we need to broaden the tent. His base is there. It's not going anywhere, but we need a, a VP candidate that will help to broaden the electorate that Donald Trump has shrunk. I don't think he's going to do what he did before. And I think that all of us remember the story or heard the story on the tarmac of how Mike Pence was just hailed on the tarmac so that I believe by Steve Bannon so that he could meet Donald Trump. And it was, it was this weird Donald Trump type scenario where he chose Mike Pence. I think, for example, there's a dark horse that he may choose, somebody like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I don't even know if she's old enough to be vice president of the United States. I think she is. I'm not You would know. You're from Arkansas. Yes. Is she? Yes. Okay, okay. But I think he would choose somebody like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I think he's not going to go the traditional route any longer, but I do believe he understands that he has these gaps that he has to fill. Bakari and Alice, great conversation this evening. And I do want to mention, as we have been watching this event in Rapid City, uh, that... Uh, Governor Kristi Noem did go ahead and endorse 
Donald Trump as we were speaking, as expected. That Poor is Ron DeSantis. Poor Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Where is he? It has been nine days. There have been at least eight sightings, and now nearly 400 officers are searching for an escaped killer in Pennsylvania. How is he still on the run? We are on the ground next. Right now, the search is still on for the convicted murderer who escaped a Pennsylvania prison nine days ago. Close to 400 officers are on the hunt across southeastern Pennsylvania, despite several sightings of Danilo Cavalcante since his prison break. And now a source tells CNN a guard who did not see or report the escape has been fired. CNN's Brian Todd is in the search area tonight with the latest. Brian? Well, Brianna, a lot of questions being put to law enforcement about why they have not caught this man yet. What I can tell you, having covered a lot of ground here with our team over the past four days in this region, that this area is much more difficult and complicated terrain-wise than a lot of people really realize. You can't describe it as completely rural, but there are a lot of vast rural pockets in this area. A lot of properties here, homes that have a ton of property on them, like this field that you see behind me, a lot more property than you see here. They have outbuildings, they have streams, uh, hills, forests in these properties, a ton of places for this man to hide. That's one of the reasons that they've not caught him yet. Another reason, the surveillance cameras that have picked him up over the past few days, uh, two of the, two in particular, these were trail cameras in an area called Longwood Gardens. Again, another very vast uh, rural type area right behind me. These are trail cameras that were put in place by private operators maybe months or years ago. Uh, and these images, it, at least two on at least two occasions, were the ones that captured Cavalcante on the move at night. The problem with those was that they were not transmitted to law enforcement in real time. Those images of him, you know, captured on those surveillance cameras were not transferred in real time to law enforcement. That is unlike the cameras that law enforcement itself operates. So it took almost a day in each case for law enforcement to actually get those images. So he seems to have been kind of one step ahead at every juncture, Brianna. Brian, we now know that this guard who failed to see Cavalcante's escape, so obviously couldn't report it, has been fired. What are you learning about what happened at the prison? Well, the acting warden of that prison, Howard Holland, has called this a failure of the human element. What we know is, you know, you've seen, everybody has now seen that dramatic video of him crab walking up between those two walls. What we know is the tower guard who was supposed to be watching that did not watch it. Why? We don't exactly know. But he was distracted for some reason. He did not see it. He did not see it and he did not report it. So no one knew that Cavalcante was even missing for about an hour. We know from the sequencing that we've been told that Cavalcante, he crab walked up that, you know, that, that hallway there, those two walls. He got through razor wire at the top of that. He went across the roof. He scaled a fence. He got through more razor wire. We do not know actually how he got off the roof. But this wasn't, ca this wasn't even known for at least an hour. He got an hour head start, and that was so critical. Brianna. You have some new reporting on his history in Brazil. What have you learned there? Right. Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens of the Pennsylvania State Police has told us that in 2017, after he was uh, alleged, after he allegedly committed another murder of a man who owed him money, he went in hiding in the jungles of Brazil. So he has experience hiding out in hot, vast rural areas like this one. Uh, what Lieutenant Colonel Bivens said was that the search for him there was, quote, not intense and he was able to slip away. 
and Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Bivens says that that's not the experience that he's going to get here. However, we're now in our ninth day that he's been on the run. They've thought at various times they've had him hemmed in. They have not. They have not. Brian Todd, thank you for the latest. A stark warning from the FBI director about how many Russian spies walk among us here in the U.S. I'll ask the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, about how worried he is about this next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. As Ukraine's counteroffensive enters its fourth month, President Zelensky told CNN he's not open to negotiations with Russian President Vladimir Putin. When you want to have compromises or a dialogue with somebody, you can't do it with a liar. Zelensky talked to CNN's Fareed Zakaria about the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Russian mercenary leader, whose plane crashed weeks after his brief mutiny. Zelensky said it shows what happens when people make deals with Putin. Joining us now is James Clapper, former director of national intelligence. Sir, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Zelensky says he won't be able to have an open dialogue with Putin. I suppose, uh, you know, that's not surprising. You can't blame him considering what he's been through. But how do you see this war ending then? Well, I'm not sure. If I, if I knew that, I wouldn't be here, I don't think. But uh, right now, I think it's, uh, it's going to be more of a, a slog than a sprint for uh, the Ukrainians. Um, and I think, frankly, uh, we need to be more aggressive in supplying them and supporting them, notably with uh, air power. I think that would really make a difference in, uh, you know, this breakthrough that everybody thinks uh, the Ukrainians uh, should affect. Uh, so I, uh, and it would be in everybody's best interest, the Ukrainians and ours certainly, to end it sooner than later. It already seems like a slog. So what should Americans looking at it be prepared for then? Well, more of the same, I, I would guess. Uh, and that, of course, brings the question uh, to the forefront about what, what is the uh, collective U.S. and, for that matter, the broader, uh, the West patience for uh, a, long, a long slog time, uh, kind of contest. And that's what I'm saying. I think it would be better to speed it up. And the way to do that, I think, is to be more aggressive about the, the, weapon, the weapons and the nature of the weapons that we supply to them and do it at a faster pace. I want to ask you about Russia. Russian spies among us, that was, that was the kind of, uh, I think, eye-grabbing headline that came from FBI Director Christopher Wray. He was speaking at a public event yesterday. Let's listen to what he said. The Russian intelligence footprint, and by that I mean intelligence officers, uh, is still way too big in the United States. So is the U.S. just crawling with Russian spies? Is that what he's saying, and why is he saying this now? Well, I'm not sure why. Um, you know, it's an interesting comment. I've, I frankly worry more about the Chinese, who I think are more um, 
pervasive and more uh, sophisticated uh, in their approach to spying in, in the United States, and I think they're more focused than the Russians. The Chinese have specific objectives they want, uh, particularly with respect to our intellectual property. Uh, the thing about the Russians is they, a lot of their uh, spies or operatives have been caught in several uh, foreign countries, uh, and I think we have pretty good tabs on them here. And I think that's an indicator of their uh, tradecraft, which uh, oftentimes is a little ham-handed. Okay, so you say you're worried about China. Let's talk about that, because we learned also this week uh, from the nominee for the Joint Chiefs Chairman, General C.Q. Brown, he warned that U.S. airmen uh, need to be sort of on guard in a letter this week, that the Chinese military wants, quote, to exploit your knowledge and skill to fill gaps in their military capability. Tell us a little bit about this, how this is working, what China is doing, and how successful they might be being at this. Well, I think the Chinese, first of all, I think General Brown's right on the money to point this out, and I'm kind of glad this uh, memo uh, became public. Uh, I, th- I suspect this is a, a, a obviously a bigger problem than just the Air Force, and he was right to point it out that in that case. And I think the Chinese, again, they're very focused, and they're going to go after people that they think uh, have knowledge, have, have had technical training, notably in the military, even if it's done indirectly through uh, you know third-party com- uh, companies or other countries. So they're not witting, in other words. But very possibly they're not. Uh, and again, that, this points to the sophistication of the Chinese, and they're, I think, a lot more ingenious and creative in their spying uh, uh, operations than, than are the Russians. What is your biggest worry about the difference that China's focused operations could make? Well, they are, you know, they have a plan, and uh, they, in particular with respect to technology, and if they can't develop it indigenously, they're going to go for it, and, and they have... So when they set out to recruit people, it's very focused because they think that person may have access or will have access to the kind of uh, technical knowledge that they want. And certainly military veterans are uh, a very appealing target for them because of their not only their training, but their practical experience, particularly if they've served for a whole career. Do you see any cooperation between Russia and China? Well, no, I really don't. I think there is a uh, animosity, fundamental animosity, which uh, actually is racial with the with the Russians. So, despite the appearance of uh, getting together, joint operations, all that, I think fundamentally they're 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 suspicious of one another. In the case of the Russians, uh, they're they're going to uh, you know grab onto anybody they can find. They'll they'll do business with them. We're seeing that. North Korea coming up. Exactly. Uh, James Clapper, thank you so much. We appreciate it. A quick programming note for more of President Zelensky on the counteroffensive on corruption in Ukraine and compromising with Putin. Tune in to Fareed Zakaria's exclusive interview Sunday at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. But there's a good chance that you know someone who has had COVID recently. That's because cases are up nationwide and so are hospitalizations. So how worried should we be about this new variant? I'll be asking our doctor next. COVID-19 has been on the rise in the U.S. The number of cases is still relatively low, but recent CDC data shows hospitalizations are up 
nearly 16%, and new variants are renewing questions about masks and vaccines. Joining us now is Michael Osterholm. He is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Sir, thank you so much for being with us. How worried should people be? Should they be thinking about masking again? Well, first of all, it's really an important point to make that while we're seeing widespread transmission, and I think it's uh, gaining quickly, uh, we're now learning of states where up to a quarter or more of all the nursing homes are in the middle of large outbreaks, large number of school outbreaks. So in a sense, we're back to seeing the transmission we saw uh, in that 2020-2023 time period. But what we're also seeing is a much milder illness. You mentioned hospitalizations. For example, we hit a peak of 150,000 hospitalizations a week back in January of 2022. Uh, now here we are at 17,400 a week, a far, far cry from the 150,000. Uh, and so while it's up some from where it was in July, it's still low. Same as with deaths. If you look at deaths in January of 2021, we had 25,000 deaths in one week in this country. Today, we're about 722 deaths a week. So still an issue. I don't want to minimize it. But I think what's happening is we're seeing this widespread transmission of a virus that's causing a milder illness uh, than we've had at any time since the pandemic began. Yeah, that does put it into perspective. The updated vaccines, they're supposed to be available later this month. How important is it for people to get boosted? Is that something that people just need to be thinking they're going to do every year, like a flu shot going forward? Well, you know, Brianna, we're still trying to understand that. I don't think right now we have any good evidence that it's a seasonal virus like influenza, meaning that it occurs traditionally in the winter months. You know, I call it a seasonal virus because it occurs in all four seasons of the year. Uh, and, and, uh, and I say that tongue in cheek. So I think that we still have to look at the issue of how do we vaccinate? I'm happy to report that the data that we have, even as as late as this afternoon, shows that this new booster that's coming out actually provides fairly good protection against the strains that we see now and this new one, this 2.86 that everyone's been talking about. So I'm confident with that. The challenge, I think, is is that immunity wanes. And that's what I think we're seeing right now is that if you get six to 12 months out from when you were infected or when you were vaccinated, your protection begins to diminish substantially against getting infected and even potentially against developing more serious illness. So what should you do? Get the booster. I hope that CDC makes it uh, permissive for everyone over six months of age to get with a strong recommendation for those 65 and older or those with immune compromised conditions because we do know that the booster can provide many extra months of uh, avoiding serious illness, hospitalizations and deaths. You say the symptoms have gotten milder uh, with these more variations. Have the symptoms changed? Well, I have to say, first of all, when I say milder, let me just be clear. I think it's a combination of which variants we're facing, but also just what's going on with our own immune system. And the fact that I wish that this was a virus infection, that once you got infected like you do with measles, you likely had lifelong protection against getting reinfected. We know that's not the case. Like influenza, you can get infected over and over again in multiple years. So part of the issue right now is we have this battle going on between our body's immune systems and the virus. And what's happening, I think, is is that that's what's resulting in a milder illness. If none of us had pre-existing immunity from previous vaccination or infection, I think we'd be in a much, much worse shape right now. So that's what we're trying to understand. Is that why we're seeing milder illness? I I don't think you can say it's just the variance itself. Michael Osterholm, great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
In an era of high-tech sparring with China and Russia, the White House gave the Situation Room a modern makeover. You can see it for yourself next. We do have some breaking news just into CNN. A magnitude 6.8 earthquake has hit southwest of Marrakesh in Morocco. The Royal Moroccan Armed Forces say at least 100 people are dead. Many are injured. They are monitoring the risk of aftershocks right now. Just take a look here at the video of the damage coming into CNN. Entire buildings have collapsed in the old city. Officials say it was the strongest earthquake to hit this part of Morocco in more than 120 years. There are reports that hospitals across the area are overrun. Again, warnings of aftershocks that may hit across the region. So stay with CNN for more on this breaking news as we follow it. And before we go, we wanted to show you the new and improved White House Situation Room, which just reopened for business after a $50 million renovation. Gleaming new walls, monitors, chairs, tables, presidential seals as well, but much of the improvements are buried where we cannot see them, behind the walls, under the floor, much needed technology upgrades since the last update in 2006. Even though we think of it as one room, it is actually a series of rooms beneath the Oval Office. And you'll remember that side room where President Obama and his team watched the bin Laden raid in that infamous photograph there. It's been completely torn down. It will be reassembled at Obama's presidential center. In its place, two small breakout rooms for top officials to work privately when they come to meet with the president. And a programming note for this weekend, former NFL pro Coy Wire will dive deep into the issues behind football injuries and how the game is evolving to find new ways to protect the players. You can watch that on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper Sunday night at 8 on CNN. Thank you so much for joining us. Caitlin will be back here on Monday. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillip starts now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.